This morning we'll read Jude's letter together. Last week we finished up in Romans, a treatise on the gospel of grace that comes to us in the gift of faith. And so this morning I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at what it, what it would look like for us to contend for the faith that we've been given. I was told just a second ago that those of you who are part of the Sunday school class at PCPC heard Rich preach through this book for six or eight weeks, and some of you memorized it. So I expect as I read it to see some of you mouthing the words with your Bibles closed. Little worshipers and young disciples, our passage this morning really only gives us one thing to do. But then it says that there are several ways that we do it. So you're going to have to listen very closely. And in the end, all the things you hear for us to do are actually this one thing. So here's what I want you to answer. What does it mean to contend for something? And during our sermon, how many different ways can you count that we contend for our faith? This is the demand and refreshment of Jesus' gospel In the letter of his servant Jude. The letter of Jude, verses 1 through 25. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and so deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. They are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of, of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came in ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. 
that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, and to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord Jesus, you have overcome our stubborn hearts with your wondrous love. It is your costly love that left glory to take our curse. And so you struggled for us. Now teach us how to struggle for your gospel. Because your gospel is worth our sweat. Show us the goodness of your good news here again this morning. And we will cry out again with Jude that eternal glory, majesty, dominion, and authority belong to you, the Father, and the Spirit. We ask all of these things in faith because we trust you to be good to your people. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, I have to come clean with you this morning. When we first became Presbyterian, I was a little disappointed. Now, to most of you, I'm just a measured and subdued dork in a robe. But those of you who know me outside of this context can attest that it's not the robe. I'm just a measured and subdued dork. (laughs) Now, I was disappointed when we became Presbyterian because even though I don't have the personality for it, and even though I'm pretty sure there's no way I ever really could have pulled this off, I have always wanted to preach like those southern tent revival preachers the kind that you would have seen in Robert Duvall's movie, The Apostle. You know what I'm talking about. Instead of standing up here in a black robe, I'd be wearing a baby blue suit with wide lapels. And I'd start marching on the stage, and I'd have a, I'd have a mopping rag for my head, and I'd get a little sweaty, and I'd say things like, I'm a Holy Ghost-filled Jesus preaching machine here this morning. My preaching's going to be glorious. It's going to be victorious, uproarious, and celebratorious. I may be on the devil's hit list, but I'm on Jesus' mailing list. Because we got Holy Ghost power here this morning. The power that'll change you when you don't want to be changed. Can I get an amen? I have always wanted to preach like that. So thank you for indulging me. That is my only opportunity, and I appreciate it. 
all kidding aside, I really have always wanted to preach like that because I love the energy. I love the crescendo in volume and cadence that seems to push through an entire sermon like a freight train. And I think I love it because it makes my faith feel very active. In preaching like that, faith isn't so much something you have, it's something you do. Faith feels more active when it has that kind of drive and rhythm, and especially when it's accompanied by the squeal of a Hammond B3 organ. And according to this letter, faith is something we have because it was given. But because Jesus gave it to us, it isn't something that just sits there. It needs to be done. Now, you could read Jude like a sermon, and it would read very much like the preaching style I just told you I always wanted. If it helps, you could picture Jude mopping his brow and slowly falling into rhythm as he goes through the letter. Everything starts off slow and soothing, right where you would expect, with mercy and peace and love. Then he picks up pace a little bit. He speeds up as he tells us to contend for our faith. And Jude races through 11 warning images and 15 verses. Seven allusions to Old Testament history and four word pictures, the Exodus and angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Michael fighting for Moses' body, Cain, Balaam and Korah, Enoch's prophecy, people who look like waterless clouds and fruitless trees and wild waves and wandering stars. And then he takes a deep, dramatic breath, and he pauses, and he slows everything down. But you, beloved, unlike all of these faithless ones that I've listed, be faithful and build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Jude tells us that our faith exists with depth and substance and real holiness. But it's not a collector's item. It's not something you keep in a glass case so it doesn't lose value. It's like the bike your parents bought you when you were younger. It's a gift for sure, but it's not meant to be decorative. It has to be exercised and used to be enjoyed. And Jude tells us exactly how to do that with our faith. He says we have to contend for it. I'm afraid that our tendency when we see words like this in Scripture is to gut them. I think we too readily picture contending the way we think about an ad campaign. That we might knock on doors and distribute flyers. Maybe we'd rent a billboard or hire a Christian actor to be our spokesman. But that's not what it is at all. Contending is like a fight. It's a real fight. Knock down, drag out. So go ahead and picture it. What is the ugliest fight that you have ever seen? What's the most astonishing fight you've ever witnessed? Was it on a screen? Was it Bruce Lee versus Chuck Norris in The Way of the Dragon? Was it on an ice rink in any hockey game you've ever been to? 
Was it on a field when Zidane, the French soccer player, destroyed one of his opponents with a headbutt in 2006? Or was it in a ring? Was it Ali Foreman in 1974? Was it that strange fight ten years ago that cost Holyfield a chunk of his ear? If I had to guess, the most intense fight that you can picture, that most of us can remember, didn't take place between actors or professional athletes. It was two kids by the swings during recess. It didn't happen for prize money. It wasn't because the script called for it. It probably started when one of them said something about the other one's sister. Or when that bully finally pushed too far and it ended with torn shirts and bloody noses and bruised knuckles. It's not hard for me to remember mine because I didn't just watch it, I was in it. In the eighth grade, I knew another guy who was no stranger to the eighth grade. He was what we might call a veteran. Because of his multiple suspensions, this was his third fall semester in it. And for the purpose of this story, I'm going to call him Phil. Because I grew up in Dallas, and I don't know for certainty that this illustration won't go back to him, and I don't want to relive any of this. But one day I was bored with algebra. And I found myself staring out a window, and it just happened to be directly above Phil's head. But Phil thought I was staring him down. In the middle of class, while our teacher was explaining things on an overhead projector, Phil stood up, and he walked across the room very casually, very at ease, so calmly that no one noticed. And he was a pretty substantial kid, as most 16-year-old 8th graders are. (laughs) And just as casually... And just as effortlessly as he had walked across the room, he picked me up out of the desk like a backpack and threw me over the desk next to me. And when I jumped up, he was already swinging. And that's when I started contending. I didn't go looking for that fight, nor would anyone I know go looking for that much fight But suddenly I was in it, and my only option was furious struggle. And that's the picture of contending. That's what Jude is telling us here. Some people have strolled into the church unnoticed, calmly and quietly, but they don't belong here. And they're not giving you any options. Now you have to fight. In fact, in everything that Jude says in this little letter, the only thing he gives you to do is to fight. Contend for your faith, he says. He appeals to us that way in verse 3, and then he picks it up again in verse 20. And the instructions in verse 20 really just get more specific. They really just fill out what it means to contend for our faith. And then in between, you have all of those verses where he spends the bulk of the letter with all of the admittedly odd examples to remind us how high the stakes really are. Jesus struggled and fought for us in order to deliver this faith once for all. And through history, he calls his church to struggle for that same faith. 
So how do we struggle for this faith that was once for all delivered? What does it mean to fight for this once for all faith? He tells us to build ourselves up in it. To remember the severe goodness of Jesus. And to consider the evil that He opposes. He tells us to pray. To abide in God's love. To be merciful to those who doubt. And to those who struggle in their sin. All the while without treating their sin and its pollution lightly. Which is what it means, by the way, in that odd statement about stained clothing. It's a reference to the strict purity required in Leviticus. That when infection on the body spreads to clothing, it has to be burned. And here Jude isn't telling us just about clothing. He's really telling us that in all of our mercy and compassion, we need to root out the impurity of our sin with that same kind of brutality. All of this sounds good if we leave it there, but you have to admit it seems a little vague. That's exactly what you expect to hear in church, right? Be nice, pray, love, don't sin. I'm willing to bet that all of us could have written that sermon this morning before we entered the theater without a passage in front of us. And if we leave it that vague, we miss Jude's point, and it doesn't match any of the furious tone that gripped our attention in verses 5 through 19. So when and where do we contend the way he wants us to? We don't often think of it this way, but we need to start treating the way we recite the creed together as part of our contending. In the Apostles' Creed, we have an almost two millennia old expression of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And in the face of those who distort Jesus and those who twist and pervert His grace, we say what is true about a Savior that we love. We say it in unison with each other, but also with His church around the globe and through history. But that probably doesn't sound like a fight to you. It doesn't sound like a fight to most of us because we think too little about the real force behind our words. But the church has always contended for the words we use to talk about Jesus. The church contended for the faith once for all delivered at the Council of Nicaea in 325. When that faith was being violated by some inside the church... False teachers who said things about Jesus that weren't true. They denied his eternal existence and they said that he didn't have equality with the Father. And according to church tradition, at one point, while Arius was arguing for his heresy and making too little of Jesus, a bishop named Nicholas flew at him across the room with fists flying and broke his nose. And when you and I sing the creed together this morning, we are no less defiant. In opposition to all that we see around us, against the world's accusations that our God is weak or less than good, we lift our voices together and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, who is good to us and sent His only Son 
Jesus Christ. But this fight comes to us in more than just the creeds we say. It's not just printed on paper. It's a creed that we live. We live it in baptism, where we come humble and needy, declaring our faith in the Lord's promised goodness for our children and for new believers, the same goodness that He has shown to us and that we trust Him with. And then we rest all of our weight on Him. And in a few minutes, we'll contend together at the table. After weeks of doubt and temptation, we are reassured of Jesus' faithfulness as we come here expecting to be fed on the grace that He has for us, the grace that we're starving for. And so when we're gathered together for worship like this, we do all of the things that Jude has given us to do. We pray We remember, we remind each other of the Lord's goodness. We love each other. We extinguish doubts. We hate sin. In saying the creed and trusting Jesus to mark us as his own and then to feed and care for us at his table. And then we leave. We walk out the doors and we get in our car and the theater's in our rearview mirror. But when we leave the theater and spend the week scattered, we continue to fight and struggle and contend for our faith in our sanctification. Imagine what it would look like for the church to refuse error and fight over faith by saying no to our own sin and loving Jesus more deeply every day. We see clearly this is the way to fight in our passage. Look at our opponents. Look who they are in all of this. It's not skeptics outside of the church who are upset. It's not people who say that Jesus is nothing. It's fake and hollow disciples who live in the church or near it or wear some of its names and talk about Jesus. Our Jesus And they claim to love our Jesus. But just like Judas kissed, their love is hollow. And at times, they hold positions of prominence in the church under the name of our Jesus. But they deny Him by twisting His grace into license for sin. As an excuse that says, my sin is okay, this is the freedom Jesus wants for me instead of the kind of freedom and liberty Rich talked about before our confession of sin. And you and I fight for the purity of the gospel and of our faith when we keep the grace of Jesus untwisted. Our kids are pretty sweet to each other most of the time. And I think that they really do love each other. But sometimes it's easier to see that and tell that than others. Our youngest has a little easier than Sophie June, our middle child, did at his age. I think it's because Walker and Sophie June are a little older, and they're more into the idea of teaching and taking care of baby Ford. 
They can appreciate how cute he is. And how sweet it is that he wants to do everything that they're doing every second. And they're all for that. They know they're awesome. And they are so glad that someone can appreciate them for what they are. But whenever Ford wants to do what they're doing with the thing they're using, everything turns on a dime. And it's over. When he grabs onto whatever toy is in their hands, all of the encouragement and all of the sweet, baby-toned voices change immediately. And suddenly it's nothing but screaming, grasping shoves and that emphatic declaration that parents can hear in their sleep night after night. No, it's mine! And while we don't encourage that kind of thing at home, that's exactly how you should contend for your faith. The perverse and unbelieving don't get to take the grace of Jesus out of your hands and redefine it for their own use. It doesn't belong to them. It's yours. And so remember and believe and live in the grace of the Lord Jesus as it actually is. Not like some credential for your sin, but as its death warrant. Skeptics, the brunt of our passage this morning falls on us as the church. And it reminds us that the faithfulness of Jesus calls us to be faithful to his gospel and to our faith. But this this passage gives you something to ask for from us. If you have doubts, this passage says that you should expect gentleness from us. And sometimes that's going to take reminding. But we should be glad to be reminded. This means you can voice your doubts freely. And we won't or we shouldn't berate you for having them. Or try to beat you into submission in an argument. So speak up and ask your questions. And remind us when we forget that what we owe you is gentleness and compassion. If you didn't watch the Rangers game live on August 4th, 1993, then you have almost surely seen footage during sports highlights from the last two decades, or up on a big screen when you're at the ballpark. And if you didn't see it there or any of those other places, you have almost surely seen it on YouTube. About a month and a half before the last game of his career, Nolan Ryan hit Robin Ventura with a wild pitch. And so the 26-year-old batter charged the mound. And as soon as he got there, he ended up in a headlock. And Ryan punched him mercilessly until a catcher came to break them up. And if you watch the game or you've seen the footage, you know that the best part of the whole clip is the time in between. It's watching a 46-year-old man about to retire, standing on a mound, patiently, waiting for a 26-year-old aggressor. The fight is coming to him, 
But there's no real contest, and he knows it. And that's exactly what it should feel like to contend for this singular, pure, and most holy faith. Whether we fight in the creed or in our sanctification as we say no to sin, the fight is coming to you with all of its zeal and energy. And you have to know that it will go limp in the face of truth and holiness. The things that Jesus has given to you Jesus struggled to deliver this faith to you, and now as His believing, marked, and fed people contend for your faith, trusting in His promises, quick to confess and repent, and standing on the throat of your own sin. He is able to keep you from stumbling, and if we belong to Him, He will present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Thanks be to God. Amen.